0: Philosophy, as practiced in today's universities, is not just useless, but its methods are pathological. That's the thesis of Philip Kitcher's new book, What's the Use of Philosophy? Kitcher is a professor of philosophy at Columbia University and one of the leading figures in the field. Uh, Kitcher's book is the subject of today's New Ideal Live podcast the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute I'm Mike Mazza associate fellow and joining me to discuss Kitcher's arguments are fellow Aaron Smith and Ben Bayer hi Aaron hi Ben hey, Mike. so hey, Mike. Aaron Kitcher is a professor of philosophy um why should we care what he has to say about his field if it's so useless
1: well, I mean, you, academic, I mean, the, the academy or the uh, research and, and, and publication and teaching as it occurs in the universities is where uh, aspiring philosophers, people interested in life's big ideas uh, go to sort of form their view of what philosophy is, what its basic questions are, uh, what its, uh, what a proper methodology looks like in philosophy, how to think philosophically, what its basic presuppositions are and so on. And for better or for worse, uh, having had that kind of training, having had that kind of uh, acclimation uh, to the field, um, they then go on to influence other fields, other other fields of, of re- research. They teach generations of students these, these same thinking methods, these same presuppositions and so on, um, for better or for worse, as I said. And they also, I mean, some of them, also prominent ones, then go on to write books that, uh, impact impact our world
0: yeah i think it's it's worth just reminding ourselves that um you know several of the major kind of social trends or political trends that we've talked about on this very podcast um, have their origins in philosophy departments so the effective altruist movement the the kind of long-termist movement that's a spin-off of that we've talked about that a few times on the podcast that's born of peter singer's work in the back in the 1970s um his his book famine affluence and morality kind of had a really big impact on on how people think about um um you know w- to what extent they should give to charity and how they should think about that and it, it, it additionally his uh book on animal rights just kind of spawned a whole right. you know movement, uh, uh, movement of animal rights activism and you know uh, legal reforms around how animals are treated and um, nowadays you can't have a political conversation without someone bringing up equality equity um, uh, income inequality all all these different uh, kind of uh, uh, issues related to um, egalitarianism and again that discourse has its Roots back into the nineteen seventies. John Rawls, um, a professor at Harvard, uh, wrote a book called uh, *Justice as Fairness*, in which he advocates uh, for a kind of egalitarian conception of justice, and, and that's in philosophy departments thirty well fifty years ago now, and that has spawned a whole um, a whole sea change in how um, how the country thinks about uh, uh, social and political issues. So um ben what do you make of the state of academia uh, academic philosophy and its kind of its own image of itself as being relevant to the world i mean we we have our view but how do they see themselves
2: i mean you just gave two i think really good examples of cases in which academic scholars made an impact beyond academia now Aaron was saying earlier, for better or for worse. And uh, we'd have to have, and we have had conversations about whether or not those were for better or for worse. I think in both cases they were for worse. Uh, And so, you know, one reason to care about what goes on in academic philosophy departments is that they can have that bad impact. Now, the question is why? Uh, Do they have it just because of the force of their personalities? These are really charismatic guys or something like that. Uh, or is it, is it something else? Is it, is it something about the ideas that, uh, that simmered and developed in the course of academic debate? And you gave two good examples, but the thing is they were only two. And there are at least a lot of academics who think, well, yeah, but I'm not these two forceful famous guys. Uh, And they struggle, they often struggle to explain the relevance of what they're doing, Uh, especially the relevance of their research. They're churning out journal articles that nobody reads except for other academics. And while they might have impact on other academics, it's not clear how they even impact their students uh, with with the arcane topics that they're writing about. And the author we're going to talk about today, uh, Philip Kitcher, is someone who thinks that there's a real problem with that, who thinks that uh, it it shows that there's something, that the, the field has lost its way, that it's not really relevant to the lives of students, to the lives of uh, the man on the street, uh, and, and it's become an increasingly esoteric navel-gazing game. And the whole question we're going to talk about is, well, why does he think philosophy is irrelevant? Is he right about the way that it's, uh become irrelevant the reasons for why it's become irrelevant and what's the solution what's the alternative
0: good so when i introduced our subject i mentioned kitcher kitcher's criticisms of the profession are pretty cutting so he's not just saying there's some problems here and there and some sub discipline the the word pathological is his so He has a a chapter in which he diagnoses the pathologies of philosophy's methods we'll talk about uh uh, shortly, but I I want to make uh make clear like why this is in in our view kind of a big deal. So Kitcher is a leading figure in the field. Um he's widely respected, cited, his book sell well, his students um, go on to get important jobs. And so here's a leading figure in the field saying, yeah, there's a serious deep problem where what we're doing has no point. And the way we're doing it is completely um, uh, 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 diseased. Um, And one of the things that excited me about the book is that I've I've been in taking, I I had been taking part in academic philosophy from 2003 when i started taking classes as an undergrad to like 2018-ish when i finished graduate school and yeah people were kind of aware that there were these problems and certain ways of asking philosophical questions didn't make sense um but to see a major figure in the field and stake out his claim that that yeah there's something really really uh really really wrong here i think is is exciting so um okay let's dive into it aaron what are these pathologies kitcher is on about what's well let's start with just what his general assessment of of the academic field is and then go into some of the details aaron uh you seem to be muted
1: His general assessment uh, is that yeah. philosophers have become disconnected from human life, disconnected from any kind of real world human problems or concerns, uh, that much of the research has no practical value. It yields no results uh, either in useful content that's true or uh, useful methods that might be, let's say, uh, used in other fields or uh, that yield fruitful results. Um, and one of the things I like is that he, he says that, you know, there's all sorts of little cottage industries uh, uh, on sending around some alleged alleged pseudo problem. Uh, and everybody's piling on with journal article after journal article. And, and a lot of it is literally going nowhere. And the question is irrelevant uh, in a deep way. And so he even questions whether what many philosophers uh, in the sort of English speaking world today uh, whether what they're even doing is a legitimate line of work. And I think that's an important criticism. Like, are you even doing anything valid? Not from some airy perspective or some high level, but you're not even doing any valid work at all. Uh, and there's a suggestion that it's not even, there's something not even an honest line of work if what you're doing are just pursuing these things with no, uh, sense at all of whether they have any value uh to the outside world or are you just simply being employed and getting a paycheck to do what other people around you are doing and that's it that's all you're doing um and so yeah like you said he, he identifies a number of features of the academic the, the academic world of the way philosophy is practiced that he regards as pathologies and i think it's a good way to put it uh, now he thinks they i think we, we might talk more about this but he thinks they stem from you know something positive but then, then they then they go a little wild, you
2: know, but I doubt that. But anyway. Um... let's dig into some examples of the of the pathologies. And I, I do think it's important he calls them pathologies. Now I actually think that's not that's not strong enough, and we'll talk about later why. But it's it's stronger than what we're used to. And he gives a list of them, six of them, in fact. We won't go through all of them, but I want to highlight like the top three. Uh, that I think are the most revealing and interesting, and which we'll come back to today. Uh, One one pathology of contemporary philosophy that he talks about is is the the philosopher's obsession with the analysis of concepts without concern for real facts in the world. And so just an example here is, that he spends some time talking about, is the, the ongoing debate in contemporary epistemology about the definition of knowledge. Uh, Some of you may have heard of the Gettier problem and uh, how this relates to the Gettier is someone who says knowledge is not justified true belief. That's a a definition of knowledge that's been proposed. And he gives a counterexample to that. And so someone then tries to come up with a better definition that avoids the counterexample. Uh, Non-lucky justified true belief. Something like that. And then there's a counter example proposed to that and so then someone comes up with another definition that avoids the next count and this goes on and on and on and you get new proposal counter example to the new proposal yet another new proposal new counter example to that uh and it never resolves and eventually the literature degenerates people give up the question never gets answered they walk on to new questions and that's That's just one example from epistemology. You could give all kinds of other examples from ethics and philosophy of action and metaphysics and and on and on and on. And it just, so it looks like a game. It looks like a debating society where people are making proposals, shooting them down, and never making any actual progress. And he thinks that this is a sign of of irrelevance. It it looks like he's right to me. Another example of a, one of the big pathologies is the field's preoccupation with, with formalization. If you take a philosophy class, you will eventually come into contact with symbolic logic. And you know, symbolic logic has its uses in computer science and in mathematics, but for some reason philosophers always try to bring it in in order to dress up their proposals, in order to dress up the de- you know, their proposed definitions, for example using all kinds of arcane terminology and notation. And you can decode it if you work hard enough and make sense some sense of what they're talking about. But there's a question like, why do we have to go through this whole procedure? The philosophers say that it's for the sake of adding clarity, but uh, clarity shouldn't be harder to achieve than what you already get from the English language. And uh, Kitcher thinks that it's really just trying to dress it up to make it look more profound and important than it actually is. Maybe the Uh, philosophers have some kind of, uh, uh, they'd really like to be treated like scientists, so they use notation like scientists. A final example of one of the pathologies he mentions is the field's uh, particular methodology, how it tries to ground its proposals and claims, its reliance on so-called philosophical intuitions. Uh, So this is the kind of thing that philosophers are are, uh, claiming to rely on when, for example, they give you these uh, very strange thought experiments. Uh, say there's a, ch- a child drowning in a pool. Do you, you go in to save the child, even if it's going to mess up your genes? Well, then why shouldn't you also try to pay for someone who's dying from starvation around the world? Uh, that's one of the more ordinary sounding ones. Uh, if, you, if you've heard about the trolley problem, you've heard of the, the stranger one. So you, there's a trolley careening toward uh, some uh, people who are on a track, and you can divert it from the track to another side track where there's a worker, so you'll save three people by killing one worker should you throw uh, the switch. This is something that we're never going to encounter. And then there are all kinds of weird twists and turns on that where you're also supposed to give your reaction as to what you should do. And the twists and turns become increasingly artificial, allegedly there to isolate some feature of the situation that's supposed to inform our understanding of, for example, some moral principle uh, but the, the the philosophers who use these in their classrooms uh, are inevitably met by uh, glazed-over looks on the eyes of their students who wonder, why are you asking us about these fantastical situations that we're never going to encounter, uh, and why are you making it so impossible to resolve the dilemmas that you're facing us with? What is the point of that? It doesn't seem to bear any relationship to the to the real decisions that we have to make, and what are these intuitions that we're supposed to be drawing on when we answer these questions anyway uh what kind of knowledge is that the fact that we feel a certain way about which uh way we should pull the train uh what kind of knowledge is that is that anything like science doesn't seem like it so uh those are just the kind of top three hits of philosophy's pathologies according to kitcher and i mean i should say i i totally agree with him that these are pathologies if not worse
1: yeah and these these kinds of things you, you were talking about the the trolley appro- the trolley uh, problem and uh, these appeal to intuitions. I mean they they have kind of a, a dual effect. I mean on the one hand, for many students, that well you said they, their eyes glaze over and stuff and they stop they start seeing the point. Like what is the point of this philosophy? Then seems useless. I'm not going to encounter one of these situations, and even if I did, I wouldn't be able to be in a position this totally artificial strained sort of set up of constraints that you have to make a decision and I wouldn't even know whether I was in that situation and it's just why are we doing this and so many will simply turn away from philosophy. And here they have a a subject, which is um, life guiding and they're turning away from it and then other students who stick with it uh, wind up absorbing these things that this is this is how to think about morality. Uh, as you form some artificial situation and try to work your dig your way out of it, like you dig a hole and then try to climb out of it, and, and appeal to your intuitions, um, which is a horrible uh, methodology. So, I mean, Ben, you said you agreed with uh, a lot of these criticisms, and I think there's certainly, I think a major point of this podcast should be that there's certainly something salutary, something healthy, something good uh, about kitcher's uh critique of today's academic philosophy and mike you were talking about your career i think all of us were in the sort of early 2000s in the period so this isn't the period that he's talking about i think the problems he's talking about go much further back um, of course i think he's aware of that but so we should say something about what's good and healthy in this kind of critique um before we move on to kind of saying what we think is off about it
0: yeah i think as far as the pathologies of the methods are concerned, I think that the real, the one that's most objectionable and that he's most right about to me, at least is this attack on the intuitionist method, because like, like Ben was saying, what is an intuition? It's like a feeling or it's like how things seem to me, does this concept apply to this case? Well, it, it feels like it does. And like, and I can't really articulate why and should I pull the lever in this trolley example or push the man off the bridge to stop the truck? I I kind of have a feeling one way or the other, but then Kitcher notes that yeah, but a lot of his students don't have a feeling one way or the other. They're just befuddled by the whole exercise and it, 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 people have realized this, you know, going back a, a few decades, that yeah, it really seems like um, people who are educated in English-speaking philosophy departments have one set of intuitions. And then if we ask people outside of that, well, they have a different set of intuitions and you kind of scratch your head. And and it's not really puzzling because an intuition is just, you know, whatever implicit beliefs and values you have kind of manifest themselves as what seems like the right answer. Um, so there was kind of this moment maybe 25 years ago of, yeah, maybe we should be more empirical. But the answer was not to question intuitions, but to start taking polls of people that are outside of philosophy is called experimental philosophy. And the experiment is, well, yeah, we know what people at Columbia have, what intuitions they have. What intuitions do ordinary Americans have or English speakers have? And then somebody said, Well, yeah, well, why just English speaker? Why don't what do the Chinese speakers think about the definition of knowledge? And I mean that's not much of an improvement I, I guess it's better than just asking what people with phds from oxford think about trolley cases but it's still relying on the intuitionist method and to to see somebody just like really drill at this is very gratifying to me because i think that i, mean, I don't think i'm alone in thinking that this is all a bunch of bs this whole intuition reliance on intuition
2: in the best cases i think experimental philosophy is there to debunk the intuitionist method it's it's showing there's just no coherence in the way that people have that in people's alleged intuitions there's you know varies across cultures so there's no reason to think that it has epistemic status but they don't go very far in using their empirical methods to figure out okay well how will we actually answer these questions without appealed to intuition
1: Yeah, and I think he's right too that uh, philosophers should be asking themselves um, is what they're doing and does what they're doing have any value. Like what is the I mean what was it James puts a cash value like what's the cash value of this like how does this. How does the kind of research that I'm doing actually relate to real human concerns real problems that people have to face does it help people think more clearly does it help people. um, orient themselves in life uh, more successfully? Does it provide um, ways in which we can, you know, more effectively reform our institutions? I mean, is there something that actually matters at the end of what you're doing? Or is your research uh, like a dead end and it's just going nowhere? Um, And if you're not doing something useful, um you should find a useful line of research or a new career and i think uh i think that's that's valid um and another thing he notes which i think is right but it's so it's so qualified as to it's hard to give him credit for this but you know he notes correctly you know that philosophers uh for quite some time now have virtually abandoned uh the attempt to have a system to to be systematic in philosophy They've moved away from this idea that you have a philosophic system that you're trying to form in an integrated worldview, and they're very suspicious, and Kitcher is in a way suspicious of this too, and we'll talk more about that, I think, um, but nonetheless, he thinks that philosophy should offer what he calls a synthetic vision of things, uh, and this here he's following uh, William James, the pragmatist philosopher William James, he says, it should offer philosophy should offer a synthetic vision of things it should offer some kind of an integration putting things together in a certain kind of way um that helps you make sense of yourself and your your place in the world and it, the, what your life means and that's right um now you know and um but now he thinks that synthesis needs to be pretty limited um so he's very suspicious of a kind of a grand uh, a grand vision or a grand integration or a holistic system is uh, very, very suspicious, like most philosophers today, about that. Um, uh, but th- the idea that you should figure out whether the stuff actually matters to human beings, uh, and that philosophy needs to provide a synthesis, it needs to provide an integrated perspective. I think both of those are right. Uh, yeah, but I think he should ask too: Why? Why have they abandoned systematic philosophy? Why are they suspicious of, uh, you know, uh, integrated worldviews? Um, I mean, so I think more more of the analysis, I think, needs to be done as to how you got to this state. Um, but, yeah,
2: I digress. And I think the big question that we need to, to ask now is, okay, he thinks we should be more practical in some way. We should synthesize certain things, but not everything. Uh, what, what are we supposed to synthesize, and to what kind of practical end i mean aaron what is what does he basically say about this what's his so he, we've, we've talked about his observation of the pathologies of the field uh, if we're going to extend the kind of medical metaphor here uh, what's his diagnosis and then what is the treatment that he prescribes
1: well um Let's back up a little bit. Um, the diagnosis here uh,
2: is that you could start with the treatment too, because that's they uh, they're, they're, they're well, I
1: mean, so we, Look, we've said that uh, we've said that there's something good, something salutary about what he's doing. Um, but his proposal is to rethink um, the, the purpose and the practice of philosophy along pragmatist lines and here he follows William James and John Dewey, are American philosophers in the pragmatist tradition. Um, but the way in which, uh, once you start fleshing out what it means to rethink philosophy on pragmatist lines, <laughs> it turns out that basically what he's you know, endorsing is a view of philosophy. Um, that it's it just turns out to be a subjective enterprise uh with no claims to offer important truths. So he's 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 he has the view that, and this is a kind of a pragmatist perspective, that philosophy is not there to offer you abstract truths and principles, you know, principles that purport to be true. Maybe in a way in some way, it can do some of that, but it's just that's not what it's there for. It's there to make things work, to solve problems, and so on, and to just propose concepts and, uh, and methods. It's more formalistic in that way, uh, but we can say more about what that amounts to.
2: Um, so yeah, so yeah, sure. it, it's 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 helpful to see how that uh, prescription for treatment. Flows out of his particular diagnosis because so we went through three of the pathologies, uh, the uh, analysis of concepts, the uh, formalization, and the reliance on intuitions, and we said, "Yeah, these are real problems with the way that with the methodology of the field." What's interesting is is how he what he sees these as symptoms of. He sees them as symptoms of, well, these are the methods that philosophers adopt when they try to answer too many grand questions, when they're trying to come up with, say, an analysis of the concept of knowledge. What is knowledge? What is truth? What is justification? What is a cause? Uh, What is morality and what makes moral statements true? These big kind of classical questions of philosophy. The problem is they're trying to answer them. And they think they can get an answer they think they can find a true answer and uh it's it's characteristic of the of pragmatist philosophy and, and it's worth pausing for a moment just to say a little more about what that is aaron you mentioned some of uh their their well-known inclusions pragmatism is not just a name for kind of common sense practicality it's 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 an actual philosophic doctrine that goes back to you mentioned William James there's also John Dewey uh CS Peirce uh and there are others those are the kind of big three american pragmatists and it's it's been seen as america's a uh, singular contribution to the history of philosophy uh, Kitcher himself is british but he he has the John Dewey chair of philosophy at Columbia and so he sees himself as a kind of card carrying American pragmatist and, and uh, agrees with all of its major prescriptions. Uh, one of those major prescriptions is throw out the possibility of ever being able to answer these questions. Why? In effect, they're too big. They're too abstract. Uh, in a, in a lot of ways, pragmatism comes out of empiricism. James himself called it radical empiricism. A it's a it's a commitment to first level experience. The things we see and the things we feel, and he uh, groups those together often as though they're the same, as though as though they belong in the same package, even though they're importantly different. And what matters—the only way you you can answer a philosophic question, or the way you can grapple with a philosophic problem, the better way to put it, as a pragmatist—is—is is to ask what difference does uh, a question or do different answers to questions make to your experience? Where that's again that kind of combination of things you can ex- see and things that you can feel. So what, peop- what pragmatists do is they observe, well, if you look at the debates that philosophers have had down through the years, they never seem to be able to resolve them. They never se- seem to be able to find some experience in the way that scientists do that actually settles their question. Uh, and they come to the conclusion then, well, there is no settled truth. There's just a community of inquirers who's who's trying to resolve its disagreements. Everything's resolvable, everything's revisable, rather. Uh, and that means, yeah, philosophy isn't really about answering questions or about seeking truth. Uh, maybe there are certain kinds of fields where uh, we get closer to something like uh, the objective truth than in others, but philosophy sure isn't one of them. And so what is it then that philosophers are actually supposed to do? What are, what are they supposed to do with their time that would make things matter to us in our lives. And here Kitcher's prescription is vague to say the least. Uh, At one point he says philosophy offers concepts, questions, suggestive arguments and analogies which help people deliberate. So they deliberate because they run into quandaries. They disagree with each other. They need to resolve it somehow uh, f- pragmatism says we should try to solve these problems that come up. Maybe that will solve it with a compromise of some kind between competing views, but that's not necessarily an answer to a question. And you might wonder at this point where, uh, you know, w- what's the value? What's the point? If the big question is what's the cash value of your enterprise? Well, what is the cash value of having new concepts, questions, suggestive arguments, analogies, etc.? And the best answer that I can find in Kitcher's book, and this is frankly not much better than anything I've found in my other reading of pragmatism, uh, of pragmatist philosophers, he, he says on page 149 of his book, philosophy changes the way people think, the way they see the world by accomplishing a change of perspective. Experience is conceptualized differently. New possibilities come into view. So that's that's the answer as to as to why this is now valuable to do to in effect help us see things differently. And 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 you know you know that's
1: that's true, what he <laughs> says. I think that's why you said that's probably the best answer he gives. That is true, but then it's if it changes the way you think, why do you need to change the way you think? Is some is the way you think wrong, and then now you're thinking in the right way? Uh, why do you need to change the way you see the world? What's, what's the purpose of accomplishing a shift in perspective? Is it to get you closer to the truth? Is it to get the truth? Is it, and if you abandon this notion of the truth, why are we changing perspectives, broadening our views, posing questions, listening to proposals, what's it all for? And like you said, with the pragmatist perspective, it's, well, we have confusions, um, in our heads and we have certain kinds of conflicts or problems. And then maybe some of that stuff, the philosophers are giving you. Will help me resolve my problem but resolve it in which direction resolve it in a way that i got it right and now i'm on the right path or just i don't worry about it anymore now (laughs) but maybe you should worry but so it's like again it's that that
2: move away from truth that i think is is really dangerous to this perspective and makes it very formalistic it's a good point that there is definitely something right about how what philosophy is valuable for is helping you see things in a new way, but it matters a great deal which way. And yeah. I mean, just as an illustration of that, here's something else you can you can find that will also do all the things that he just said philosophers do, uh, and it won't cost you a dime. Chat GPT. It can pose questions, give you new concepts, uh, help you see the world in a different way, or how about YouTube? You watch YouTube, the, you follow its algorithms, it leads you from one video to another. <clears throat> these are all new, you might not have seen them before. Of course, they might lead you down like a, a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and racism. Uh, doesn't it matter whether or not these conspiracy theories are based on reality? Doesn't it matter or not whether racism is actually a good thing? So is it enough that it's showing you something new? Doesn't, don't you need to have a reason to think that what it's showing you new the new way of looking at things that it's proposing to you has some basis in truth. Of course, the pragmatists think that uh, there's just been too much disagreement in philosophy where uh, we can't hope to find any. Uh, And so we kind of got to get by with what we have, and all we have is just new ways of looking at things. But where this hits home for me is in the final chapter of his book where it's called letters to a letter to young philosophers. And he's trying to uh, answer questions he's gotten from graduate students who want to go into the profession and they sympathize with what they with what Kitcher says is wrong about the profession. and they're asking him, well, what can we do to make things better? And one of the things he says is, you know, get more engaged as a teacher. Find ways to do just enough, you know publishing and research so that you can really, focus on dealing with your students and helping to get them to you know, see things differently. That, that would make a, that's, that's the place where you have the most direct impact on other people's lives. And I think he's right about that. But then when I think about his proposal for what philosophy actually is and trying to teach that to students, I mean, there's no better way to demoralize students than to say i've dragged you into this class i'm going to throw out a bunch of new perspectives and theories but we're not we're not going to come to any conclusion at the end of the class you can't actually answer these questions uh don't bother trying philosophers have tried for centuries and they've given up i mean what is the point of taking such a class and and what's the virtue in trying to engage with students if that's all you're going to give them now you know he's probably going to say that i'm oversimplifying his position and that there and we will say a little bit more about some of his more concrete proposals for research where uh it it has some flesh to it but it, i still walk away with that as the as the takeaway
1: yeah and that was um that was my first experience my very first philosophy class we read some stuff said some stuff talked about stuff the class was over it wasn't even clear what philosophy is doing or why we're there. Um, I mean, so I think when you are teaching, like you said, when you are teaching, you can. I think there is a value in expanding the student's perspective. Uh, but if the if your professor tells you, you know, yeah, but philosophy can't offer you truth, I think it makes sense to leave the room. I mean, what's
2: what's the point? Or leave the the field. Okay. Well, let's let's actually mention some of his more specific proposals for for research. You know, for things that philosophers can write about and and new concepts and questions they can try to propose. Uh, he divides this throughout the book into basically two categories, proposals for the uh, understand, our understanding of human knowledge and proposals for our understanding of the human good. And Kitcher is, by his trade, a philosopher of science. Uh, he's, he's written a lot on the history of science and how to understand it from a philosophical perspective. He thinks philosophy of science is the... Uh, is the healthiest field in the subject. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that, but there's something plausible about that. What he thinks needs to happen is that more philosophers, especially in that field, need to just get into the nitty-gritty. They need to study the actual science, as again, you know, as against spinning theories in their head about concepts. And he gives examples in cases where philosophers of science have actually dug into the science of a field and they've proposed new Uh, ways forward for understanding concepts like causality uh, and things like that. But notably, he at the same time thinks, well, all you can ever do is get involved in the nitty gritty of particular philosophy of science questions. Like you can get really into the debates about quantum mechanics or about uh, how to understand statistical data. But general questions about, well, what is science and how, you know, what's, what is the foundation of science and how do scientists confirm their theories he says this is too much this is too big uh the logical positivists and popper they they tried to come up with kind of grand unifying theories of what science is they were again met with all kinds of counterexamples and that debate degenerated so even here where he thinks there's you know potential progress to be made it's not at any general level that can give any general advice say to working scientists he does think philosophers should try to give help to scientists but not in a general way that helps them understand what it is to be a scientist uh there's something similar to say about so yeah mike you want to jump in on that one
0: yeah so i I was gonna just gonna say that i i so i agree with him that i mean as far as i haven't looked in depth at every area of contemporary academic philosophy but from what i'm familiar with I, I agree that philosophy of science is the comparatively the healthiest field within philosophy and i just i think it's worth thinking about why that might be i mean if you if you look at um contemporary philosophy of science i think one of the complaints you might have is that it's too concerned with Every nuance of every historical episode in the history of science, like in comparison to ethics and epistemology, where you get these. If you went to a philosophy of science conference and started trying to understand, um, uh, the, uh started arguing based on intuitions that you know this, this, uh, this understanding of quantum mechanics is better than that one. Because I have some intuition about blah blah blah, like I think you would get laughed at. Like, what you, what you, what they do in philosophy of science is try to ground their positions in the actual practice and h- historical facts concerning the question. So it's m- much more grounded in some some kind of reality than than um, intuitionist speculation. Um, so I, I i agree with him that it's much healthier than the other fields and i think he's also right that the main value philosophy can offer to science you know, philosophy of science can offer to scientists is methodological um advice and guidance as opposed to like coming up with um theories and uh, Grandiose cosmological speculations that you know, earlier philosophers would would engage in, but I think you're right that where he's uh, where he goes wrong is in his skepticism about general philosophy of science. So what he talks about in the book is are these two groups of uh, philosophers of science from the early twentieth century, the positivists, and also he talks about Karl Popper and the kind of a um, uh, approach. And, you know, if that's, if that's your whole perspective, like if that's your whole understanding of what it would look like for philosophers to give, um, general advice to the sciences, yeah, it seems kind of, it might, it would seem kind of hopeless because those are two hopeless approaches to philosophy of science. But if you look back at earlier episodes, so in the 19th century, figures like Huell, William Huell and um, uh, uh, John Herschel offered general theories of the methodologies of science that were very influential on Darwin and Maxwell, who are the, who, to the two biggest innovators in science in, in uh, the 19th century and from two disparate fields. It's not like it is just influencing physics, it's physics and, and biology. Um, and then even earlier, um, the work of Francis Bacon spawned Baconian societies, and um, the, the the Herschel and Huel saw themselves as reviving Baconianism, and there's an influence of Bacon on um, Newton in the early early development of physics in England. So it's 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 possible to give general advice to the sciences, it's general methodological advice. In the sciences and the possibilities based on actual successful cases of of that so I, I i don't i don't um you know i don't know kitcher well enough to speculate on why he's not considering them to at least ar- argue against that um but i i think it's a strong counter example to what he's saying about the value of general philosophy of science so i think he's right to say that there's a value to the specialized philosophy of sciences but that he should you know be more um uh be more open to the uh, possibility of um philosophers offering general advice okay. advice to the sciences in, in in general and not you know reify the bad philosophy of science in the 20th century into the, the subject as a whole um he's, and to just would just okay go ahead. I have one, one more point but if you want to interject before oh go ahead well so <clears throat> just to to give a sense that maybe science as a whole does need some kind of larger, bigger picture advice, there's reason to think that um, scientific progress, despite the, um, despite maybe surface appearance appearances is slowing down and has been for a while. So there's um, something called the creativity decline. So if, if there's some research looking at um, what kind of patents are being granted and they're dominantly derivative patents, not like it, n- new innovation. Um, there's the well-known lack of new ideas in fundamental science. So um, in, in physics, um, the, the, the best theory, quantum uh, electrodynamics, was largely completed in the 60s and 70s. So, And then attempts to advance beyond that none of them have come to bear any kind of experimental confirmation or fruit um, and then there's something uh, that's called the great stagnation which is that the rate of technological innovation generally has has, has slowed um in compared to previous eras so there's something that a philosopher of science who's focused on science generally not just in some particular field should be able to say about this like what's the cause of that is it just that we're nearing the end of scientific discovery that's doubtful um is it something that's gone wrong in the way science is practiced Um, maybe it's methodological maybe it's sociological that the scientific institutions are not um, geared towards um, progress the way they used to maybe it's both maybe it's some third thing so i think there's a lot of value that a generalist could say um, and i I think kitcher's mistaken to to cut that cut that off
2: yeah it's strange when one of the when he criticizes contemporary epistemologists for being too obsessed with debating about the definition of knowledge one of the things that he says is you should do more like what these guys over in uh, social epistemology are doing when they're trying to uh, answer questions about How do we know we can trust online? And how do we figure out what's wrong with conspiracy theories? And how do we deal with all kinds of uh, dizzying claims in the world of so-called alternative facts? Uh, He's basically saying we need some general advice for how to navigate the information environment. And he sees some of these so-called social epistemologists asking good questions about that. And incidentally, they sometimes propose answers. that's general advice for how to figure out what's true across a very wide domain uh stuff we see on the internet uh stuff we see in the media more generally why wouldn't you want general guidance for scientific knowledge which is probably as if not more important i mean it's 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 not more important to those of us who are not practicing scientists but the the fact that some scientists are trying to find it and across a variety of different fields is pretty is still pretty important to to all of us because of the fruits that it sometimes yields so uh, I don't know why he doesn't see the, the immense practical value of that um, and so that's also
1: there's, there's a there's a difference between I mean he's a philosopher of science so he's you're knowledgeable in that field and it's where he, the field which he works and I can understand people doing philosophy of science, right, in a way that's uninformed by the actual methods used by people in the various sciences. And then you propose some general theory and they, they, that we're practicing scientists like, this is not at all what we do and you don't know what you're talking about. So I think that kind of point is valid, but it also misses, I think, the general point about what philosophers offer. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say, uh, you know, reason is your means of knowledge. You know, this is what reason is. You shouldn't follow faith or, or expect some kind of revelation or take a poll. It's you have to function by reason. What does it mean to use reason? How do you reach conclusions? What's logic about, you know, how do you think logically? How do you establish a relationship between an idea and the facts? And that's the, the more of the core um like what are concepts and so on this is the kind of the core of what philosophers do in terms of offering a general guidance about how to think um you know it's not that I'm going to go tell the chemist um give him specific methodologies to help him do his work if I didn't know anything about the actual methodologies they use and what the track record is of these and like the, the philosopher
2: of science who's knowledgeable might do that We need to talk about what he what his proposals about ethics, because I think these are where the rubber really hits the road. And I won't say too much about the details of the proposals, in part because he doesn't say that much about them. Uh, But uh, he does lament the fact that theoretical ethics, uh, that is questions about what is the basis of moral truth, he doesn't think those are so practical. Uh, We'll talk about that in a moment, but just to give you a glimpse of what he sees as the pragmatist alternative uh, to asking questions about what is actually good, what is actually right, uh, he says, well, you know, we have to diagnose the new conditions of our ethical practice. What's that even supposed to mean? Well, we evolved our moral capacities at a certain point in our history, and they were adapted for certain circumstances, but now we live in a different circumstance, and we need to figure out what the implications of that are. So he has a whole book on this that I haven't read, but uh, it's 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 uh, it's telling again that that he doesn't think any part of the. Uh, I mean, he says we need to look at how our the capacities that we evolved serve our circumstances now. Do they serve us well? Well, how are we going to know that if they serve us well if we don't have An understanding of what it is to serve us well which is one of these big grand philosophical questions that he doesn't think we should spend so much time answering so i think we need to stop talking about his proposals and start looking at the alternative and start uh discussing why these big questions make a difference and why we should try to find answers to them
1: yeah sure and i think that uh, i mean. Ayn Rand has talked about the value and importance of philosophy, it basically all in all her work, basically everything you can read by her is she brings out the idea of why this stuff matters, where the rubber meets the road, why you need philosophy. And so I think she's philosophy's best defender in terms of identifying its value and so on. And it's good to get a general sense of what she thinks a philosophy does for you. And I think there's there's a there's a passage I like in a in an article she wrote called The Chicken's Homecoming. And it has to do in part with the present state of philosophy. And she's talking about academic philosophers um, at a Eastern APA meeting, like American Philosophical Association meeting in that. So it's 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 funny because we've all been to those meetings, Uh, not that one in the 60s, but Um, And she says, uh, and I'm just reading this from the the book, she says, the task of philosophy is to provide man with a comprehensive view of life. This view serves as a base, a frame of reference for all his actions, mental or physical, psychological or existential. This view tells him the nature of the universe with which he has to deal, metaphysics, the means by which he he is to deal with it, i.e. the means of acquiring knowledge, epistemology, The standards by which he is to choose his goals and values in regard to his own life and character, ethics, and in regard to society, politics. So in this sense, she thinks that philosophy is a practical necessity. Uh, And part of it is that what our minds do is they integrate things and you can't help. First of all, she thinks that uh, you can't get through life without accepting answers to philosophic questions. You just can't do it. If you really, you can't go through life without ever having a view about what's the basic nature of the world that I live in. Is it, does it function by cause and effect? Uh, is the chair going to support me (laughs) or is it, or is it the idea that the, the world is governed by, you know, miracles or guided by God, or it's chaotic, or you can't have some view about that. You wouldn't necessarily have a theory, but you have some perspective on that or some view of what counts as knowledge. That's not true, Ben. You just believe that. That's just a belief, right? You have some view about what's the difference between something that's known versus something that's just held onto or belief, or believed. Or some view about what, what things are good, what things are bad, what things are right and wrong. You couldn't, you would have no way of guiding yourself through life. So the question, so what Iron Man poses is, yeah, but you have to try to figure out whether any of those answers are true. So by the time you, you start thinking about these things, you're already stocked with a bunch of answers to these kinds of questions. You don't really know it. But you're acting on them all the time. So then you have to then figure out, are, is this true of the world? Is this true about how you reach knowledge? Is this true about what's good? And it matters which answers you, you hold on to. Um, you know, whether you have a basically religious worldview, and you think that there's a, a God who gives you commands, and then your ethics is a matter of like adherence to those commands, it's about compliance. Um, your anticipation, your perspective on yourself in the world. Is the world a place of, you know, sort of pain and, and man is sort of stained with sin and I try to get to some pure place where there's no pain and and then I have to follow the guidance. Like, is that, that's a whole way of seeing yourself in the world. And there's a question, is that true? It makes a difference whether you, uh, just to put it in, in a nutshell, it makes a difference whether you, know, you or the people around you uh, accept the, a worldview like that of Karl Marx, or the Taliban or the founding fathers. I mean, these are very different views about, about knowledge, about value about man's place in the world. And it makes a difference to you like which ones you accept, uh, in terms of your success in the world, and your view of yourself. Um, so I think these ideas really shape a life and they shape and as a result, they shape a culture. Um, so this, her, her view is an emphatic philosophy has enormous value, and it matters enormously to you, which values you accept
0: and it's if we're if we're asking the question in the if we're asking it in the form of like what use is philosophy like that's the way Kitcher frames it her her view is um it's useful in every aspect of life and but to to really see this and understand I think you have to keep in mind like kind of two ways in which this might manifest in in your life in particular so one is just imagine you've never really done anything. You're not a philosopher. You're not thinking in abstract terms, but maybe you, you hear some um, people talking, maybe you read a a book and you get convinced of the um, effective altruist view and the idea of effective altruism is what's the moral thing to do in life is you kind of, um, take all of your, uh, money. So let's say to just simplify you take all of your money and you give it to the most effective charities and you kind of, there's a, um, certain threshold, a standard of living, let's say of $50,000 a year and everything above that you give away. Some people actually take jobs. They don't like in order to make more money and then go give it, let's say you get convinced of that and you might not have any, um, real awareness of the sort of, academic, abstract debates that took place in the past that kind of gave birth to the the whole movement. But if you buy into this, that's a radically different, like course of life you'll live than if you read um, Atlas Shrugged or the Fountainhead and become convinced that the purpose, the moral purpose of your life is to pursue your own happiness. And if, Rand is right and you adopt effective altruism, you're uh, ruining your life. And, you know, she's further, if she's right, that there's only one life to live, you've thrown away the only thing you have. Um, So philosophy can, again, for better or worse, um, make a real difference. And it's not just like, um, it's both abstract philosophy and kind of like, more commonsensical philosophy have an impact. And then on the other hand, um, if you're a, uh, person outside of philosophy, you're not pursuing it as a specialization, you're still benefiting from it's most, um, or benefiting or suffering from it's some of its most abstract, um, uh, um, questions and answers. So, one of the values and uses of philosophy as a specialization is to give guidance to the special to the sciences but specifically in you know, generally and you're a beneficiary of a well functioning knowledge producing machine even if you're not yourself a producer of new knowledge we all like to um, use our credit cards to buy things online um, and that is the product of a lot of very abstract math and logic uh, and um, uh, you know, f- physical and technological know-how went into that. And one of the things philosophy does is help make that possible by giving um, methodological guidance to the sciences and by defending the, and articulating the political conditions under which that can, um, that can happen that's a kind of intersection of a lot of a very abstract stuff going on, you know, that might be a, a apart from you. And that's another use of philosophy, um, for you. So it's, it's, it comes in every direction. Um, uh, the value of philosophies from, from every direction.
2: I want to say one of the last things I want to say before we wrap up is to, is to drive home the point that, Philosophy matters even, dare I say, especially at the very abstract level, the very level that Hitcher complains about, the, the level at which he says, no, philosophers are dealing with two b- questions that are too big and grand. Those are the ones that are in many ways the most important and the ones that have the biggest practical consequences. And let me illustrate that with a final example. Uh, so at one point when he's lamenting the method of conceptual analysis and the reliance of on intuitions in order to do it, he says, uh, why do we need to know the answers to these questions? Uh, would we be able to gain greater knowledge if we had any an answer to the epistemological question? Would settling the issues of the grounds of moral truth assist in moral decision-making? Hell yes, I say. Uh, what what are some of the different answers that are proposed to the grounds of moral truth? Uh, what is it that makes murder wrong? Well, here's some here's some two leading proposals by philosophers, the ones that he says we shouldn't bother answering. One view says, in effect, the, the wrongness of murder is, is written into the fabric of reality somehow. Out there, independent of us, this is the view they call moral realism. On the other side of that debate is the idea, no, what makes murder wrong is just that when we think about murder, it makes us feel bad. Uh, This is what they call subjectivism or emotivism or expressivism, different versions of that. Those are abstract questions in philosophy. Now the pragmatists think that these abstractions uh, have no real consequence because whether one is true or the other, it doesn't make that much difference for our experience, after all, Uh, If somehow the wrongness of murder is written into the fabric of reality, it's not in a way that you can see or touch or taste uh, or otherwise feel. It's just somehow out there and we're supposed to figure out how exactly. And that's a very good question. Uh, But, you know, we're still going to feel bad about murder, whether moral realism is true or not. The facts stay the same. And yet it does make a big difference which of these theories, these abstract theories that you adopt, and and you can see the roots of that even in the example that you were discussing, Mike, for instance, because the effective altruists ultimately come down in favor of a form of moral realism. And, well, we see how they act because of that. But uh, more generally, look, if you think the truth is out there and it just needs to be somehow absorbed from the fabric of reality, well, that has implications, for instance, for the way you think about our knowledge of the truth. It means that you can't get to it through the normal scientific procedures. It means you have to find some alternative way of getting to it. Usually the the way that philosophers propose is the very method of intuitions that he criticizes. We can't get to it through science, so we've just gotta mm, plug up all our senses and figure out what filters into our brain from the fabric of reality somehow. That's the way that uh, the effective altruists do it with some of their basic axioms, but more generally, it's the way that uh, most religions think about morality, because they think that morality is written on the fabric of reality in the form of the commandments that are issued by a god. Well, it makes a great difference for your practice if you are a re- if you are religious in a traditional way or in the new modern effective altruist way. It's a very different way of acting and making decisions. Versus, say, let's say, what people do on the other side of that divide, going by their preferences. Um, That's what serial killers do. That's a very different way of acting. makes a big difference for your life, whether you join a religious cult uh, or become a serial killer. Now, in both of those cases, it makes a, a bad difference in each case. And if you're wondering, well, if these are our only two options, wouldn't it be good to look to see if there's, in fact, a third option, a different way of thinking about where moral truth comes from? An actually scientific option that it doesn't involve uh, just one form of feeling or another Uh, and in fact there are there are philosophers Ayn Rand was one of them who thought no you can think of moral truth as not a bunch of facts that are somehow written in heaven and not just revelations of our feelings but facts about us as living creatures which we need to take into account if we are to make certain decisions and uh, that means we can't just launch into whims like a serial killer, but it, it, it also doesn't mean that these facts dictate things to us because our choices matter, and the same facts will uh, have different bearings on people who are making different choices. And so it's 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 usually bad to kill people, but if someone's coming at you with a knife, killing in self-defense, if you choose to live, can be a very good thing. And these are really big abstract theories, these three that I just mentioned but they make a difference to the kind of life that you end up adopting. And Mike, you you talked about the importance that philosophy offers for uh, guidance in the sciences, but especially if you take that third approach to moral truth seriously, which was Ayn Rand's, uh, it opens up the possibility that one of the ways in which philosophy can offer guidance to sciences is by giving us the foundations for an actual science of ethics. Uh, which is something that pragmatists, unfortunately, never take seriously because at the end of the day, what pragmatists regard as practical is is sticking to the pre-existing dominant uh, conventional views and then trying to find compromises among them. And when the only two views on the table are, uh, you know, religion versus subjectivism about morality, the possibility of thinking about morality scientifically doesn't even enter into the picture they don't see how it could be practical because it's 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 far too radical of a proposal for them. And yet, uh, if you took it seriously and thought about it, it, would make a big difference for your experience and enable you a way to find a basis in observable evidence uh, for moral truths, which that's which would then make it a testable, confirmable, provable kind of theory. If you want to ask me what is the ultimate? way we have of uh, finding an alternative to what he's talking about and reviving philosophy from its doldrums where philosophers have been engaged in pointless games. If you want to see how you can uh, show it, show how it makes a difference and can make a positive difference in people's lives, look for ways to show how philosophy can be practiced as a science to show how it can be made to yield actionable truths about life uh, and I think there are ways to do that. I think Ayn Rand offered a proposal that far too many philosophers ignore.
0: Okay. Uh, we're over time. So I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, we, during the course of our conversation made a few recommendations for things to read on this, uh, topic. So, um, of course Ayn Rand's essay philosophy, well, her, the book as a whole, but in particular, her essay, Philosophy, Who Needs It um, gives, you know she spells out her um, defense of the uh, value and necessity of philosophy. Um, her essay, For the New Intellectual, um, goes into uh, a lot of detail about her view of the influence of philosophy on the uh, direction of history and culture. Um, So that's a great resource also her. Well, this is not an essay. It's the entry in the Ayn Rand lexicon on uh, linguistic analysis. You can see some of the things Rand said about um, philosophy, you know, when she was writing. So she's her comments on philosophy as it was being practiced in the sixties and seventies. Mostly it's interesting to see that a lot of her, uh, the parallels between some of her criticisms of that style of philosophy and some of Peter's teacher's criticisms, I think that's worth looking at. And then uh, lastly, there's Ankar Gatte's essay, uh, Let's Revive Philosophy, that's available on our website at the link bit.ly-revivephilosophy. So that's it for this week. Next week, we have Dan Schwartz and Nikos Sotirikopoulos, discussing life extension in in defense of life extension. So you can uh, catch them uh, next week. I don't think we have a scheduled time yet. Um, Be sure to send us your questions for future Q&A episodes, your suggestions on future episode topics. We are always looking for um, feedback and suggestions for the podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Um, click the bell to get notifications when we go live or post new recordings. You can do, uh, take similar actions on other social media, Facebook, etc. If you're watching the recording, please like comment or share the episode to help us attract new viewers. Again, please consider doing the same if you're watching uh, the recording on Facebook. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, you can always email us at newideal at Ayn We read your emails. We reply to many of them. Um, when, even when we don't reply, we uh, consider thoughtful uh, thoughtful feedback. So thanks, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next week, or at least Dan and Nico's. Work.
2: You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.